I'm Jay Caruso, and this is Closer Consideration. The FBI. What do you think about when you think about the FBI? Typically, we think of agents. Kind of get that thought in our head, the old school agents, the ones wearing a dark suit, a dark tie, dark rimmed glasses, fedora, always serious. Pop culture, of course, has given us different portrayals of FBI agents, from kind of the hot dog buffoons in Die Hard to the -the over-the-top portrayals in movies such as Point Break. On television, police dramas are often portrayed as people who just get in the way and are arrogant and narcissistic. But there's also portrayals like Silence of the Lambs, where they're shown to be great investigators and believing in truth and justice and of course in true life portrayals such as Patriots Day the kind of work that they do to be able to solve crimes politically the FBI has come under scrutiny going back to 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign blamed director James Comey for her loss to Donald Trump and then we all know about the story regarding the FBI and the Russia investigation with Donald Trump To talk about that, I've invited James Gagliano to be on the show. James is a retired FBI agent in a career that spanned 24 years, as well as six FBI directors, including Louis Free, Robert Mueller, and James Comey. He brings that experience to discuss all matters of the FBI, including how to become an agent, what agents do, and how the FBI differs from other law enforcement agencies within the federal government. This show is part of the Ricochet Network of Podcasts. You can also find it wherever else you get your podcasts, such as iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Amazon. I ask, if you can, go to iTunes and leave us a review or a star rating. James Gagliano, thank you for being here on Closer Consideration. Appreciate it. I'm glad to join you, Jay. Thanks for inviting me. All right, so... uh, before we started, uh, before we went live, uh, make clear that uh, James is a former FBI agent. He's not an ex-FBI agent because he said there could be bums that were only on for one day and then got arrested or something like that. And so they're ex. He is former because he retired. So we want to make that clear. Um, but James, let's let's um, let's start out with uh, a little bit of history, uh, if you know it. And, and yeah, I'm assuming that you do about the FBI. When did it form? What was its original mission? How is that? And how has that changed, if any, say over the since since its formation? Well, you know, the FBI has been around as an agency in, in a couple of different forms since 1908. So it's been around a really, really a long time. I think that works out if my math is right to what, 113 years or so. Right. Um, it, it, it started out as, a, as an organization um, made up of accountants and Department of Treasury um, investigators, and it was called the Bureau of Investigation. It morphed into the Department of the Investigation, and then it didn't become the FBI as we know it now until, um, until the 1930s. Um, it, it's kind of interesting to note, you know, there have been, there have been eight FBI directors in my lifetime, and, and I served under four of them. Um, and people go back and say, oh, Jimmy, that's impossible. You know, I mean, you know, J. Edgar Hoover was a, 
a 29 year old kid in 1924 when he took over the agency and basically turned it into the modern investigative um, um, apparatus that we have now and really created the modern FBI and made it what, and I don't throw this accolade around lightly, what is considered spite of what's gone on recently, still the premier law enforcement agency in the world. Um, but J. Edgar Hoover ran it for 48 years from hmm. 1924 until he passed away in 1972. And Jay, another little interesting tidbit, he served under eight U.S. presidents from Calvin Coolidge to Richard Nixon. So, you know, I know we're we're in a part of our history now where, um, you know, we like to go back and we like to, to, you know, purge, you know, any imperfect human beings who existed, you know, um, long before we did. Hoover was born in 1895. He certainly didn't do everything right. There were certain things he got wrong. Um, but I think as a leader um, and as someone that put our agency on the map, um, got it the powers it needed. And obviously that had to be done through through Congress. So he was a he was a politician, but he was also had a keen eye for technology in the law enforcement realm um, and also how investigations worked and how collaboration was so key and important. Um, he really was a, a, a perfect vehicle to start the agency. And again, I said, you know, because now we've had shorter terms, because after Hoover, um, Congress insisted that, OK, FBI agent, FBI uh, directors, you know, we don't want them to be, um, you know, we don't want them to be dictators. We don't want to be around in perpetuity or have, you know, um, you know, what judges have lifetime appointments. And so they created the 10 year term for that. So just interesting, like I said, in, in that long of a history, um, and I had a 25 year career before I retired. And um, in that long of a history, I served under four of the only eight now that Senate approved FBI directors. We certainly had actings and we've certainly had, you know, folks that were fill ins to, to bridge before a new director could get uh, selected. But so that's my story. And I'm sticking to it, Jay. <laughs> so tell us about um, tell tell everyone about your own um, uh, background at the FBI, like when, when did you, when did you decide that you wanted it to, to be in law enforcement and, and what, what was, why did you ultimately settle on the FBI as opposed to say, just, you know, a city cop or state trooper or something like that? What, what was, what was, well, what was it attracted you? I mean, I'm, I guess some, it was an accidental path that got me there. I think everybody can possibly, you know, tell a story about how I thought I was going to do this and then life happened and it veered off and I did this. Um, I come from a military family on my mother's side, the English side. Um, I have, a, um, you know, I have a, an ancestor that actually fought at Gettysburg. My great times three great, great, great grandfather um, fought at Gettysburg um, for the New York State militia was an artilleryman there. Um, and, you know, on that side, every generation um, served in the military. On my father's side, they didn't get off the boat from Sicily until 1905. They ended up in Birmingham, Alabama, but the same type of service. Um, so. It, we they had a saying in our family that like we had literally served in, in every American war since the Civil War, with the exception of World War One. It's just kind of weird how that happened. Um, so I knew I was destined to be in the military. My father was a West Point graduate. Um, I lived at West Point for a couple of years as a kid when he was stationed there as a math professor when he came back from Vietnam. And so I wanted to go and you know, dream come true. I ended up going there, spent four years there, graduated, became an infantry officer um, in the 10th Mountain Division, a, a, a storied unit. But it was at the height of the Cold War, Jay. And it's funny now, in hindsight, when you look at 
our military and how it's been deployed across the last two decades. Um, I left the military in 19 in, at the end of 1990, early 1991, because I there wasn't enough action. And I had just read a book um, by a, a retired FBI agent by the name of Joe Pistone. The book was made into a movie and the book's name was Donnie Brasco. Uh, Al Pacino and, uh, and Johnny Depp played in it. I read the book and I just went, I got to do this. And so that was really the impetus for me. It's, I didn't really know too many FBI agents. Um, most people don't unless they're knocking on your door. And that's not a good thing unless you invite them <laughs> to dinner. But uh, so that that's how really it happened. And, and then I get in the FBI. I spent four years in the Army. The furthest I deployed was like Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, you know, inside the United States. And then I get into the FBI and, and a number of years later after 9-11 and I'm serving with the FBI's hostage rescue team. Um, I ended up being attached to, to you know, Joint Special Operations Command um, and some of the, the high speed units over there on, on some missions. Um, so it just it and I'm not saying that as a humble brag. I'm saying it as I couldn't I couldn't get deployed anywhere when I was in the military and then I leave the military. I'm in the FBI. And funny how life works. And, and then you end up in a combat zone. So that's how I, that's how I got into the FBI. So there's so the, and, and again, some of the, the inner workings of this, I'm not I'm I'm still ignorant of. But there's there's two divisions of the FBI. There's the, the criminal division and then there's the uh, intelligence division. Um, when when did the, the intelligence division come about? Like, I mean, I, I were they were they there as the same as the as the law enforcement division or did that was that something relatively new or or how did when did that come about no so let me just um and and you're you're asking the kind of questions and and describing it the way that you know the the average listener to your to your to your show here is gonna is gonna think about it. no there's more than that when it comes to to, to divisions or branches okay so there's a there's a criminal branch it's been around you know basically since the fbi started it first it, when it first became the FBI, I mean, the, the primary focus was on bank robbers and kidnappers. And the reason why the direction was, was we were pointed in that direction was because back in those days, you know, just like DMVs didn't used to be connected. So if you got a bunch of speed tickets in one state, you just went next door, got a driver's license and you started anew. It was the same thing when it came to trying to, to piece together crimes when, uh, you know, John Dillon would commit a uh, or John Dillinger would commit a, a crime in one state and then, you know, jump in a vehicle and shoot it out with the cops and cross state lines. And the cops were standing there at the state line going, there's nothing we can do about it. So the FBI looked at this as how do you synthesize? How do you how do you bring together assets and, you know, put together a system where. Um, you can track down criminals across state lines, whether it's bank robberies or kidnappings or white collar crime or sexual predators. So criminal, the criminal branch was the biggest and, and was the biggest for the longest period of time until 9-11. Now, even before 9-11, we still had a, a surveillance division. We still had a counterintelligence division, which you think of like the spy versus spy stuff. So, you know, everybody's familiar with Crossfire Hurricane and, you know, the, the case with Comey and McCabe and Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and that group. That was that was birthed out of the counterintelligence division. Most of that stuff is spy versus spy, you know, trying to figure out who the bad host nations are that, you know, the, the Russia's and the North Korea's and, and the Iran's and the China's that are trying to steal state secrets or, you know, military technology, things like that. 
Um, and then you had a counterterrorism division, you know, folks who were focused on both ends of the extremism piece. So, you know, left wing extremists, where you think about radical Islam, right wing extremism, when you think about the white supremacists or neo-Nazis, and they were focused on that. Um, the intelligence division really wasn't set up as a division um, until probably in the early 2000s and and really after the FBI was kind of remade by Robert Mueller post 9-11, because the interesting aside is, is that Louis Free had just retired or stepped down as the FBI director short of his 10 year term. And Robert Mueller, um, the third, was appointed as the new FBI director. 9-11 happens a week later. So he has his hand filled. He ended up remaking the agency. Some old timers like me would argue that what we should have done is just bifurcated. We should have kept the FBI as a, you know, as a, a organization that 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 works against, you know, criminals and criminal organizations and enterprises and then done something like an MI5 and had some type of separate intelligence gathering um, uh, organization. That didn't happen, but with the priorities flipping, so did the resources. So instead of an agency where if you had 10,000 agents at that time, the bulk of them, maybe 5,000, 6,000 were focused on criminal work. And then you had maybe 2,000 working on counterterrorism and 2,000 on counterintelligence and 1,000 working on special operations stuff. Um, it now got flipped because the FBI's number one mission and priority since 9-11 and is current today is preventing the next terrorist attack on U.S. soil. So with that, as I said, Jay, they had to flip all the resources. So now mm -hmm. far more agents are staffed in the counterterrorism realm than they are in the criminal realm. Oh, OK. Um, let me ask you, this is kind of something that's funny, going into the realm of like pop culture. And yeah, I was, I'm a fan of the old law and order series, other cop series. And whenever federal agents had come in or the FBI was going to get involved, it was always, they were raising this big stink about having to work with the feds. Um, what, I mean, is that kind of like, is that attitude overplayed on those television shows? I mean, or is it kind of like, is that tension real between competing law enforcement uh, agencies? Like, did it, I don't know if you've ever had a work case. You said you worked some joint task force things. So I'm assuming you had to work some, some with some New York City, some NYPD. Is there any of that kind of like, they, you know, cops look at FBI agents as, you know, pinheads and that kind of thing? Or is it just kind of more overblown for, for a television audience? No, I think you're, you're, you're making a fair point, you know, in, in pop culture, in the movies and on, in TV, the FBI is, is always portrayed as the stuffy, you know, uh, three piece suit, you know, wing toe shoes, you know, um, Hey, look, and, and I follow some of that. Uh, you know, I, I still wear white button down shirts and, and dark rep ties and, and cap toe shoes. I still, to this day, it's just, it's hard to get out of your blood. Um, but yeah, I think, I think some of that is just, you know, the way that Hollywood takes their, takes their, you know, their, their, their creative view of things and, and, and embellishes things. But I think that, you know, just like in all comedy, Jay, you know, there's always a scintilla of truth to it. And I right. think in this, you know, yes, historically, and, and look, what are those reasons? Well, you know, the FBI now has a 12 or 12 or 13,000 agents that work in the United States, a country of 327 million people, and they work out of 56 field divisions and then maybe 
80 something embassies or, you know, um, 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 you know, postings across the globe. There's only 12 or 13,000 of them. The New York City Police Department in a city of 8.4 million people has 36,000 police officers. So for every FBI agent in, uh, in that, that works in the country and around the globe, there are three NYPD cops. So much smaller unit. Now, you know, this whole idea of being more leader, this, that, and the other. Look, the FBI is undoubtedly good at what they do. Do they make mistakes? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen that across the last five or six years. Some of them have been publicly humiliating those types of mistakes. Um, and people are being sanctioned for them. Probably not enough, but they are. Um, but it is an organization that's done a really, really good job. And one of the reasons is to become an FBI agent, you couldn't do it right out of high school. So there was the expectation you had to have a four-year degree, mm -hmm. and then you had to have three years of practical work experience. So, you know, I spent four years in the U.S. Army as an Army officer, you know. There are people that were working for an accounting firm. There were lawyers that were working at DOJ or working in a private firm. So you're coming in a little bit older, a little bit wiser, a little bit more mature, and the investigations are different. Much of police work, not all of it, is reactive. Guy robs a bank and you see him and you and you draw your gun and you go try to arrest him. With the FBI, much of the work is proactive. So you identify where crime may be taking place and then you slowly and methodically build a case. And that's why when people go to, so few people go to trial in the federal system because, you know, the feds have a 95% conviction rate. That's why people plead out. They're like, okay, if the, if the feds are bringing this case, they got the goods. I need to cut the best deal possible. Mm -hmm. Whereas at the state level and the local level, fewer resources, um, you're charged with, with far more crimes and violations and statutes. A lot of times you're kind of throwing stuff on the wall, just trying to keep the peace and just trying to make sure that you can get the criminal element off the street. Um, the cases are worked at a much faster pace. The caseloads are much bigger. So there's that. Now, to wrap this up and bring it back to your original point, the FBI has gotten much better of reducing that elitism, um, that, uh, you know, that the actions that turned off the locals, you know, the old TV thing where, you know, the FBI agent shows up on a scene, steps all over the shell casings and the blood spatter, screwing up the crime scene and says, don't worry, we'll take it from here. Uh, don't call us, we'll call you. And unfortunately, a lot of the information flow and information flow is intelligence was one way. You know, it came to the FBI and it seldom got shared with partners. That has changed. One of the things that the FBI does now is the National Academy, which is where they bring in police officers from around the country. These are typically senior police officers in the lieutenant or higher realm. And they go through a, a three month course. I, I, wonder, I think it's still sponsored by the University of Virginia, but they get some firearms training and some practical application training and some tactics training and things like that. But it helps build a network. Now, these officers, because it's fully paid for by the Bureau, these officers now go back to their departments and they now have a relationship with the FBI. And you mentioned me working on task forces. One of the first assignments I had in the FBI was on a was on a well, back in those days, they were all broken down by ethnicity. You can't do that anymore. But I was working on a Colombian cocaine squad in Queens, New York, and it was targeting, you know, part of the part of the, you know, Cali and Bogota uh, cartels from Colombia that were distributing powder in uh, in Queens and Brooklyn. 
Well, it was a task force. So it had an FBI supervisor, an NYPD lieutenant, and an NYPD sergeant. And every FBI agent was partnered with an M NYPD cop. So it gave me a very different view of police officers than you would think. So I trusted them. They trusted me. I was, they had my backs. I had their back. It was a great lesson. Years later, when I was running the upstate New York FBI office, um, I built a safe streets task force there and it was made up and comprised of state troopers, local cops, you know, federal agents from DEA and IRS and the Bureau of Prisons and the FBI. I think we're doing it's it's slow, but things like the Joint Terrorism Task Force, FBI Violent Street Gang Safe Streets Task Forces, those type of things, Jay, I think have gone a long way toward changing the image. And also the the outcome, because that type of collaboration is desperately needed and helps make us safer. So uh, that, that's great, uh, great information there. Just kind of cut back here. I'm just going to ask you this because kind of I think it's kind of fun. If you you were to pick out a movie or a show or something like that, would it offer like probably a, the most realistic representation? of the FBI in terms of its day-to-day -day operations? Is there anything that you can think of that stands out? And you mentioned Donnie Brasco before, but I don't know. I mean, most of it was him as being Donnie Brasco, not, not the, uh, not uh, him as the agent in, in, in I, that character. I think the real life stories are so much better than what you see on celluloid. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, yeah, the Donnie Brasco movie, I mean, that was great. It kind of, a lot of people didn't even know that the FBI, you know, worked undercover. And believe it or not, during Hoover's tenure, he disallowed it. It was prohibited because Hoover felt like if his G-men got too close to consorting with the bad guys, it could taint or sully them and make them corrupt and dirty. So right. he didn't allow it. And then we realized, hey, we really can't, we really can't do investigations without you know, having agents undercover. And why is that? Well, if you bring somebody off the street who decides to cooperate against somebody else, there's always motivations, whether it's money or revenge or, you know, something like that. And it always helps the defense to impeach your witness. But if you put an agent on the stand and the agent has an impeccable record and the agent says, this person handed me this um, and we have photos of it and I'm testifying that he said this and we have it on audio, it makes for a lock, uh, uh, just a lock solid case. Now your point about movies, um, I'll throw one out there for you. Um, I think like everything, the, long, the more seasons that came on, it, it, it got progressively um, you know, less appealing to me, but the first couple of seasons of Narcos on Netflix, mm -hmm. um, now, now that's not the FBI, although there are a couple of appearances with, by, by the FBI, but that's reflecting what DEA was doing over in, 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 well, first in, you know, in, in Colombia and then in Mexico, the, the third and fourth seasons. I think that is, and I worked drug work in the FBI for a long time, and I was stationed in Mexico City for two years as the deputy legal attache and the legal attache. So I saw how these operations worked, even though it was you know, 10, 15 years after this show is set. That is probably the most realistic, realistic depiction I have ever seen of what it's like to be a drug agent, to be a counter a narcotics agent. As far as the FBI, yeah, the, the real stories are so much better. I mean, you know, I was on the John Gotti squad early in my career when I first got in the FBI and I came in very late. I was a young kid. Um, the case had been going on for a couple of years, but to see the case, the final successful FBI case that took down John Gotti and Sammy the Bull Gravano, um, 
it's the stuff that movies should be made of. I mean, that, that stuff is real life stuff, but yeah, I, I can't think off the top of my head of a movie where I go, yeah, that was a great depiction of the FBI. Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I knew people uh, uh, who were, you know, NYPD and you go back and you ask some of the guys like, what was like, what's a TV show where it was probably most realistic. And, and I don't know if you've heard this, but several have told me Barney Miller, was actually one of the more accurate depictions of a detective squad that they've seen on television. Yeah. And did because, you, do you, do you remember, um, do you remember NYPD blue? Sure. Yeah. That was another one, but I've heard the same thing about Barney Miller from the seventies. And that was a comedy and, and obviously NYPD blue was more of a, was more of a, a drama. drama. I was, yeah. But I was a brand new FBI agent in New York city um, when that show first came out and it, it blew us away by a, what they could get away with on TV and B how much it did look like a squad area because it, it is squad areas. I mean, the best ones are the ones where it's an open bay desks are stuffed together. Um, like they are in Barney Miller and like they were in, uh, NYPD blue cops and detectives and agents are yelling stuff across and there's, there's ball breaking and there's jackassery. And then there's serious information sharing and it builds a really tight, cohesive and collegial unit. And, um, yeah, I would say that my, my recollections of, uh, you know, uh, of watching um, Hill Street Blues as a kid. I mean, I, I didn't I wasn't in New York at the time, but, you know, everybody swore that that was, you know, really close to what it was like. But, yeah, I think there's much more of a of a of a library of NYPD to take depictions on TV than there are for the FBI. Yeah, absolutely. So you meant you you talked a little bit about, um, you know, what it takes to become an agent. You said you go to college and then three years of experience. So like, take us through that. I mean, briefly, like somebody who's listening to the show, he's young, he's got a, he's got a degree in criminal justice. Now he decides, okay, you know what? I want to, I want to join the FBI. Well, like what, what's the steps that he has to take to be able to get to that point? Yeah. I, I think the, the most important thing is, you know, I, I always tell, tell young kids, and, and a lot of them are, are so impatient. You know, they want to they see it. They decide they want to do it. And I know that there are some new FBI shows on TV. I think there was an FBI New York and there was an FBI something or other. Um, and I know kids see that and they um, and, and they get enamored with it and they want to do it. And, and I get it. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that I was young and and, you know, and, 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 and overzealous and, and pursuing what my dreams were going to be. But you know, in very rare instances, can you go straight from like, um, you know, a four year degree in college and go right into the FBI? You have to there has to be some space in there. And a lot of people um, I tell them, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I was lucky um, when I was in the army. I was an army officer and I was applying. And this is at a time where, you know, no, there was nothing called, you know, the Internet and, and you couldn't go online. Everything was done through me handwriting a note, putting a stamp on the envelope, sending it to the FBI recruiter, waiting, you know, a month for it to come back in, responding in another handwritten note. And it was so tedious and time consuming and 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 really difficult. But nowadays it's so much easier because you can go to FBIjobs.gov and you can have, you know, your frequently asked questions answered there and they can put you in contact with somebody, you know, who's an applicant coordinator or recruiter in your area that, you know, can respond to you. And it kind of lays out a lot of the questions that people have. But I always say, don't do what I did because I put all my eggs in one basket. Um, when, you know, when I went to college and, and it worked out, I, I wanted to go to West Point. That was it. No one's going to talk me into going anywhere else. And I had no backup plan. 
Well, when I decided to make the move to law enforcement, I applied everywhere. I applied to the Marshal Service. I applied to the DEA. I applied to the Secret Service. I'm lucky and blessed. And this is not I'm not besmirching those agencies because I've got brothers in those agencies that I am super close to. I've got great respect for those agencies, worked with them. They've saved my ass on a number of operations. I love those agencies. But I believe the FBI is the premier law enforcement agency in the world. And, and one of the easiest selling points for it is just whatever your whatever your interest is in law enforcement, there's a niche for you. You know, if you're a knuckle dragger and you want to be a SWAT guy and, a, and, and be on the FBI's hostage rescue team and kick in doors and, 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 and save hostages, which which our team has done numerous time and, and, and take out the bad guys. There's a niche for you. If you're a numbers person and you love going through 7,000 reams of paper and finding the one time the bad guy moved the decimal place two zeros to the left and that cracks the case, there's a place for you. If you want to work the Migratory Bird Act, if you want to work drugs, if you want to work, you know, Russian organized crime or you want to work kidnappings, you want to work civil rights violations or, you know, a particular brand of extremist uh, terrorism, it's there. Most of those other agencies I mentioned, all of them are great, but what they're charged to do is is more narrow and specific. I mean, the IRS, you know, you know, works on money crimes. The DEA, you know, works on, you know, going after, you know, drugs that are, are, are prohibited from sales or use um, or, you know, creation. Um, the Marshal Service, yes, they do fugitive apprehension, but a lot of their work, too, is, is, is courtroom security. So you're just given a bigger, bigger plate of things that you can choose from. And that's that's how I sell it. So when the kid says, OK, sign me up, I want to do it now, I say, but you got to take time because you've got to have done something. Maybe something that you could do is go into the military, become a cop, uh, become a teacher, be a lawyer, practice law. That Those are all the kind of things that will make you more well-rounded. And in the FBI, that's what you need to do. You, you, you need to be well-rounded and you need to have some skills that they need. And yes, those skills shift from time to time. I mean, when I was at the military academy, you know, they wanted all of us to take Russian because we thought that we were going to be at the full the gap trying to stop the Russian T-34s from storming into Belgium. And that was the, the language they wanted to learn. Now it's can you speak Farsi or Arabic or Pashto or Urdu or or Chinese? So, I mean, there's different there's different skill sets. If, if you know, you're an attorney that gives you a leg up, if you're an accountant that gives you a leg up, if you've got military service, it gives you a leg up. And if you speak a foreign language, especially dialects that it's difficult to get, uh, you know, someone that has native speaking skills with, it helps for you to get in. So I would say patience and always have a backup plan. Let that be your goal, but make sure that you're pursuing something like your schooling or another career in front of that. So if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, you've got a backup plan. Right. But you said you also need some experience. They want you having some hard experience and something before you get to go in there anyway. So it's like, you're creating the backup plan, but you're also getting the necessary experience you need. Is that right? I mean, to make you more attractive, yeah. if you're, if you're going to go be a cop for five years before you decide to go apply to, to, to be an agent, that's going to, that's obviously going to help. Correct. Yeah. I, I think in, in policing, I think absolutely. Now people will say to me, well, Jimmy, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to the university of Georgia or wherever, and, and I'm going to, 
you know, I, I want to major in criminal justice. Will that help me? And, and, and the answer really is no. If you want to, if you know that you want a career in the criminal justice realm or the homeland security realm, absolutely. Is that going to make you a better hire for the FBI? Not necessarily. So pursue something you're interested in. If the law, if you're interested in the law, pursue it. If you're interested in pharmacology, pursue it. Those are things where there are pieces of the FBI where it makes you an attractive candidate, but just having a criminal justice degree, that in and of itself isn't the thing. They're not looking for somebody to come out with a bachelor's degree in, in criminal in criminal justice, and, and that's going to be the end-all, be-all um, panacea. So um, again, having that backup plan, and I say to somebody that goes, yeah, well, maybe I'll go to law school or maybe I'll teach. Yes, because if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, physically or medically or for whatever reason, um, then you got something to fall back on. And if you do want to be in the law enforcement realm, there are plenty of places that would still hire you in a different capacity. And even for the FBI, Jay, if you're not eligible to be an, an, an 18, 1811, which is, you know, a badge wearing, um, you know, gun toted on your hip um, wearing FBI agent. You don't want to go make arrests, but you want to be part of the team. Intelligence analysts are a big part of the, the, the structure and apparatus and the success. And in a lot of cases, they're the margin of victory. We go out and do the interviews. We go out and make the arrests. We go out and do the surveillances. We bring it back to them. They make sense of it. So they're a big piece of that. So if you say, hey, look, I just I, I don't want to kick a door in. I don't want to have to put my hands on somebody and take them into custody. I don't want to do those things. But I want to I like working investigations. Um, there's certainly still a place for you in the FBI. So let's uh, that's great information, but let's let's take a turn a little bit into um, some more negative space. And that has been uh, the the criticism of the FBI going back. We could even say to the 2016 election. Jay, um, look at the time. I'm sorry. We got to wrap this. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, it, a lot. It's unfortunate because now the FBI is an institution uh, and this is this is conversations I've had with people like you of all of in and we talk about how people don't have any trust in in our institutions anymore. And, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, only Democrats have been you know, defending the FBI and thinking they're wonderful is untrue. We know we saw this at the end of the 2016 campaign when when then director James Comey kind of reopened some investigation related to Hillary Clinton and everybody was blaming the FBI for, for, for her loss. And then of course, as uh, with, with president Trump, who, who seemingly would so distrust in pretty much every government institution that there was um, just for the heck of it, because my view, his personality is one where he, he's the kind of person who always thinks that somebody's out to get him. And so, of course, it would be the FBI and the CIA and anything else. <clears throat> but you also have like some really pernicious stuff. So there's a segment of the right that is basically saying that the January 6th, what happened on January 6th, 2021, uh, is an, it was an inside job. Uh, that it was that that it was fomented by undercover agents working uh, on the ground that day to get people to 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 attack the Capitol and so on and so forth. And there's some some serious ugliness there, I think. And I think there's no no 
organization or institution is above criticism. I, I'm pretty sure that there is there. You could probably think of reasons to um, criticize the FBI. You, like you said earlier, they make mistakes. Everybody is vulnerable. It always happens. But what has been what kind of give us a 50,000 foot view of what you've seen over like the last five or six years? And how do you think that that has affected the FBI's mission, if at all? Yeah, um, you know, I think first thing to do is I would stipulate to this the vast majority of the FBI, the like I said, the 11, 12, 13,000 you know, men and women who are FBI agents, and then the agency as a whole, which I think is around 35,000 people, which includes the professional support employees and, and the folks who work behind the scenes and do the hard work so the agents can get the glory. Um, the vast majority of them, um, you know, some ridiculous 99.9 something percent are good and decent people. They're working in good faith. Are there bad ones? Of course, they're bad cops, they're bad writers, they're certainly bad politicians. I think what, and, and, and maybe the word's not troubled, Jay, because that would make me, make me appear more naive than I am on this topic. But I guess what, what does trouble me the most is the flip, you know, that you see. And it's exploited by both sides of this whole thing. I mean, the Democrats have always had a distrust of, you know, law enforcement and of, and of bureaucratic institutions like the FBI. I mean, they've always had that. And you know what? A, a healthy uh, skepticism is good. We expect that, and that should be there. They are checks and balances. And then the Republicans on the other side have always been, you know, pro-law enforcement, almost to the point where it goes too far. I mean, look, I serve on the board of directors of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. It's been around since the mid-90s. It was started by Ed Meese and a number of other just really honorable patriots. It, it literally is one of my the things that I'm the proudest to be associated with. Our job is to provide financial aid to unjustly accused law enforcement officers. Now, unjustly accused means we have to review cases and are there tons of cases that are brought to us where we say we're not going to support this case so we get it everybody doesn't always do the right thing in the fbi's instance um this was a leadership and a culture issue i believe and again i liked james comey when he first came into the fbi he was the last of the four fbi directors that i had served under i came in under william sessions then there was Louis Free, then there was Robert Mueller III, and then I left during the James Comey tenure. Um, he was affable, congenial, uh, nice, always had a good quip, friendly, easygoing. I liked him like that. What I worried about was some of the culture that he was infecting the agency with. And what I mean by that, that sounds probably far more insidious than it really is, is the fact that he surrounded himself with a lot of people that I felt were yes men. And I knew who they were. Andy McCabe, Jay, worked for me. I knew him personally. Um, and, and others that were up in his upper echelon, we call it the seventh floor at FBI headquarters in DC, because that's where all the assistant directors and the, and the senior members of the staff are. I felt that he, he, he surrounded himself with callow, inexperienced folks. And there was this, 
you know, this this confirmation bias that took place where if the director said it, then it was just going around the table and nine other people mouthing. Yes, of course. Now, look, were there some things that were done to put their fingers on the scale? We know that there was a DOJ attorney who was working for the FBI that changed an email um, to make it out that Carter Page, you know, had never worked for the CIA when, in fact, Carter Page had. That is illegal. He should be. And I know he should have gone to jail and he should have been disbarred. And I know that's being talked about now. And I, I get all that. There are people that do bad things like that. And there are just people that are the wrong fit for the organization. And the more I got to know Comey, um, the more convinced I was he was the wrong man. Now, look, Jay, I, I would never have been hired by CNN to be a law enforcement analyst, except for the fact when they had me on as a guest the morning after James Comey was fired by President Donald Trump. And and I was apoplectic. I thought the manner in which the president disposed of a career public servant, I thought it was detestable, you know, sending his his, you know, one of his former bodyguards, Keith Schiller, over to FBI headquarters to drop off a pink slip while the director is in Los Angeles talking in front of a group of agents and looks up and sees on the on the crawl on either Fox or CNN and sees that he's been fired. That is loathsome and detestable. And I said all those things. Now, what did CNN do? They immediately hired me full time as a law enforcement analyst because, oh, well, look, you know, that's the that's the angle that they obviously were taking on this. As my position on Comey evolved, I became I, I don't want to say I fell out of favor. I just began to be used a lot less. And look, this isn't I'm not using this as a platform to attack CNN. They gave me an opportunity. I was there for four years. But I noticed that as more was revealed when the four IG reports came out and Jay, I had to talk about them on air. And so I read them word for word, some of them multiple times. I was disgusted. I was disappointed. And I was angered and I just felt like, well, one, I felt let down because I look at the, the FBI as an institution that, you know, is 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 rightly revered around the country. And for the longest time had like a 90 something favorability rating amongst the United States populace. And that dropped to below 50 percent. And it just it, it hurt my heart in one sense. But then I became angry at the people that did it. And that's when I started to look at this. And, and again, I never worked in the counterintelligence realm. I worked counterterrorism. I worked criminal work. And I oversaw all of those things in different positions. Like when I was in Mexico City as a boss, you have to be in charge of all those things. I just felt like there were a number of mistakes that could not have been, this was not simply, well, these mistakes just all happened to happen. It was a great confluence, you know, the great storm that just kind of, you know, built itself up over the Gulf and, and just happened. It's just, th there were too many of these. Yeah, but w why did that happen? And how come that happened? And too many times where people were being let off for doing things that they should have been fired for. Annie McCabe. And again, I, I hold no personal animus towards Andy McCabe. We exchanged Christmas cards for probably the better part of 20 years. I don't think I'm on his list anymore, but <laughs> we did for we did for 20 years. But the bottom line is Andy McCabe, the acting director, he, he left as the acting director, right? He was serving as the deputy director, the number two person in the entire agency, lied four times, three times under oath, and he got a pass for it. 
I know he got fired by President Trump, but because it was President Trump and his attorney general and because politics had been infected into it. And look, the president didn't help out by tweeting about it and, and tainting the jury pool, if you will. But the bottom line is he's now had all of his you know, money restored. He's had his position restored and he's now a retired agent and interestingly enough, works at CNN. But um, I, I just think it was, you know, uh, some of the errors, I think, were just mistakes that could happen the same way with COVID, where, you know, decisions that were made in March of 2020 are being lampooned and lambasted right now. But we didn't know then what we know now. And I think holding people all the people that worked on Crossfire Hurricane and worked in the FBI at the time to the standard of, well, of course, the P tape, P tape was BS. How did you not know that? You know, now, after all these things have been vetted and vetted and vetted and vetted and vetted. And yes, should the FBI have done a better job of that? Of course. Should those surveillances, those um, at the FISA court been approved? The answer is no. But it's easier now with hindsight to do that. So I look at it from two ends. Long story short, I guess. I look at it and say there were mistakes that were made in good faith. Let's recognize that. And yes, there were a few people, I think, that even though they haven't been charged with it, you know, you can't read the struck page text messages and tell me, oh, that was just uh, pillow talk. It had nothing to do with us trying to, you know, wage a coup. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Let, let me ask you this. What I was I was looking and if. And if I'm you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like the last time an FBI director served in a law enforcement capacity would be Clarence Kelly, who was a, an FBI agent. And then he was the chief of police, I think, in Kansas City. Um, but like Louis Free and Robert Mueller and James Comey and even Christopher Ray, um, William Sessions, all attorneys. Do you think that the the FBI would benefit from having someone who was an agent or is it, or are they better served with somebody who is an attorney? Well, now, so you're, 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 you're talking to the guy who's now going to give you the background on those directors you just mentioned. The only mistake that you made there and, and you were pretty spot on Louis free, the FBI's six official FBI director. Okay. Was once an FBI. Agent. Oh, he was a special agent. Okay. Got it. Got yeah. it. Yep. Yep. Uh, now, the other ones you point out, um, you know, look, Jay, I mean, I, I, I taught organizational leadership at St. John's, obviously went to the military academy. Leadership is something personal to me. Like, you know, uh, I hate the term management. You know, you manage things, you lead people. Um, le leadership is a is is a big piece of this. I talked about it with Comey and the culture or the wrong kind of culture there. Um, do I think that you need somebody that's got the gravitas, that has the bona fides, that has, you know, the skin in the game? Um, I, I think that makes them more popular at the outset. You know, hey, he's one of us. He's going to see it from our perspective. You know, he walked the beat. He's he's worked cases. He's, uh, you know, this. I think that dissipates pretty quickly. People want to know that you can do the job and to be a leader. Yes, you need to have a technical and tactical proficiency in the arena that you're in. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's, a, you know, whether or not, um, you know, Christopher Ray can can shoot a bullseye target the way that I could as a member of the FBI's HRT. I, I'm not concerned about that. I, I want to know that he can do 
close quarter battle on on Capitol Hill. That's the kind of close quarter battle I want him to be good at. I want him to be a good communicator. I want him to be able to have our backs. I want him to be able to um, be tough but fair. I want him to be able to make sure that our interests are represented. Um, that's what I'm looking for in a leader. And and the fact that Louis Free had done that, um, you know, it was always a it was always you know one of those things on, on the resume, and it was a, a cool fact. But I don't think that that was what made him a better FBI director than, say, a Jim Comey or, say, a, um, a Christopher Ray. Um, okay. I, I think I've, I did a ranking once and I, it's somewhere on the Internet. I think I did it on LinkedIn where I ranked all eight of the FBI directors and I came up with this metric. And of course, it's not rigorous enough where it would be Ph.D. material. But I came up with this metric and I'm like had these like five or six different things that I evaluated each one of them on. And then it basically spit out what order it was. Um, I, I didn't even take into consideration the fact that, you know, that that Louis Free had, you know, actually been an agent and whether or not somebody was in law enforcement or not. I mean, we've had, you know, judges, whether it was Webster and Sessions and Kelly, obviously Hoover was his own kind of person. I mean, it's, you know, but it, it you just want somebody that can that understands the job, understands the mission, backs his people. Um, is impeachable. It's got to be an honorable person, um, tough as nails. And it certainly helps if they have that, that, that street cred, but it's not necessary. Okay. Who was, uh, who, who, who did you, we'll just take one ranking. Like who, who was the, who's the best one that you worked under that would sit in front of, you know, members of Congress, many of whom know that something is going to be on television. And so they knew that they were going to have their moment, and who, who is the one that would like just be like, I'm not dealing with your bullshit. Here's my answer. You know, that kind of thing. You know, I, I thought I thought. And again, it's probably unfair because when I was when I was on the, the FBI's hostage rescue team, I did Louis Free did not have a personal security detail. I mean, as a former agent, I mean, he could carry a weapon and he had a he had one guy as a bodyguard. But anytime he traveled overseas, he always took a few members of the hostage rescue team with him. And we did the advances and uh, we did all his, you know, his movements in country. And so I spent a lot of time with him, like when the Africa embassy bombings in uh, in Nairobi and in, uh, in Dar es Salaam. Um, happened in 1998, I was dispatched to, to go to those countries with him for him to tour it, um, to tour the sites and talk to the agents and the investigators there. And I spent a lot of time in a hotel room with him, not just me and him alone, Jay, of course. It was <laughs> <laughs> it was a bunch of us. And and my gosh, I mean, Director, uh, um, 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 Director Free had I forget how many kids he has now. Was it five or six or seven? He's got a he's got a big brood of kids and they were young at the time. But I spent a lot of times in room, you know, wrapping up or talking about the next day. And you get to kind of know somebody. Um, I was also the FBI's New York City SWAT team leader um, during Robert Mueller's tenure. And when the war on terror started. Um, and he was traveling back and forth to Afghanistan and I traveled with him several times to do his security in country there. And I got to know him pretty well too. Now, when I say that, not as well as I got to know director free, they're two completely different men. One is reserved taciturn, um, you know, former you know, decorated Marine, um, just, uh, and looks and dresses like an FBI agent. Louis free was a little different. I mean, obviously he'd been a federal judge, super smart, but he was more, a, congenial, more, more like Comey in the affability sense, um, mm -hmm. easier to talk to, never forgot a name. I saw both of them testify. I think the first iteration of Mueller, 
made me proud to be an FBI agent. I think what happened with, you know, this the whole Russia collusion case and bringing Mueller on as a special prosecutor and then have trotting him out there to basically, you know, recite from, you know, a report that was prepared by others. Um, I, I, I thought that diminished the man. And, and I actually felt bad for him when I saw it. I have a father that's battling Alzheimer's. I'm not suggesting Director Mueller has Alzheimer's. I'm saying I've just I've seen the diminution in, in what that does. He was not the same man that I knew before. Um, and when it came to dealing with Congress or dealing with the politicos, look, I, I again, I got to go back to Director Free. I'm an unabashed fan of his. And the way he stood up to the way he stood up to President Clinton um, and they had a very, you know, you don't want your FBI director to be cozy with the president. You don't want it to be like like Jared Hoover and have a dossier on each president either. You want somebody that can be professional and removed and detached, but at the same time, collegial. And, um, and, and I thought, you know, all of them were able to do that. You know, the four that I worked under as much as I watched and saw them on the Hill, I never actually sat in on hearing with them, but um, you know, none of them was particularly, you know, acerbic or, or, I mean, there was a, there was a bit of acidity to, to, um, to Mueller sometimes he he didn't have to he didn't have to tell you, you screwed up or you suck. He could say it in like politer prose. But you knew that. And he was the same <laughs> way on the hill when you when you'd hear him, you know, being grilled about stuff. But, um, yeah, I, there were none of them that were giving it back. Not like Dr. Fauci was trying to give it back to Rand Paul today. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that was something. Uh, all right. So um, we wrap up here. I, I usually I, I reserve one last question. And. So uh, you already kind of discussed how to become an FBI agent. So, and the last question is like, what's, what's one, one small thing that someone can do. So what would you recommend somebody who just wants to find out more about the FBI, its mission, its history, what's the best resource for somebody to do that? Is there a book? Is there a documentary? Is there something that they should say, this is what you should go read, read that first. And then you, you'll, you can go from there or watch this or listen to this, whatever it may be. You know, Jay, there's, there's, there's so much that's available now on the internet. I mean, it's just, there's just a, a vast expanse of, of stuff. I mean, you know, so much is available. We, we all know that. I mean, I mean, the days of going to the library to study something or, or for me doing a book report in elementary school, my parents, you know, allowed me in their bedroom to go get the Encyclopedia Britannica because I had to look up something that started with the letter M. I mean, we've we, we've come such a, a long way with that. And I, and I say that, you know, just to say hey, um, there's so much information out there on that. Um, what I think would help is to just stay abreast of the news. I wish, you know, look, I, I think I've been much more immersed in in the goings on in the world than say, you know, an average teenager when I was a teenager, but I don't think I was enough. I mean, I was too caught up in girls and sports and the, the usual stuff that, that that young guys are. But I would tell people that is something that is, is very, very important is to stay up on what is going on in the world. And I'll give this little tip, you know, there's, 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 there's a number of different parts of the FBI um, process to become an, an applicant and then to become a candidate and then to, you know, get a coveted slot to, to Quantico and go through the FBI Academy. But part of it is the interview. Um, and the interview is conducted usually by uh, three, four, five um, special agents who volunteer for this job. Um, and and are, it's set up by the applicant coordinator. And 
after you've taken the written exam and after you've um, you know been medically screened and after you've taken the fitness test and 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 after you've had the background investigation done on you and all those other normal things. I mean, hell, I don't even know if they do drug tests anymore. I mean, in New York now, we allow marijuana is legal. So I mean, I think on the federal level, it's still not, but right. uh, <laughs> it's going to make things different. But I think the one thing in that whole process. Um, that I don't think sometimes people take as seriously as they should is the interview. And that interview is in person. And part of it is just being asked questions about what's going on in the world. And I mean, if you're somebody that is, you know, completely, you know, just ignore, you know, current events, what's going on, it doesn't present a great picture. That and just your body carriage, you know, your ability to make eye contact, a firm handshake. And I know this sounds Pollyannish. This sounds like, okay, Jimmy, that's every job interview. Of course, you're supposed to. But the bottom line is you'd be surprised at how many people do not know that. Um, and those little things go a long way, um, you know, towards having an agent look at you and say, yep, I could serve with that person or have them look at you and say, I wouldn't want to serve with that person ever. So I think if I could give any hint, it would be, you know, make sure you're read up on current events. Um, you know, the exams change, so I, I, I couldn't even speak to how they're administered now. But the important thing is to be physically fit, um, you know, know your current events, um, and, uh, and and don't worry about other things. Like people, they're like, well, I've got to go to a pistol range. It's like, nope, we, I, we'd rather not have to break you of the bad habits in firearms handling and safety then um, teach you from the ground up. So they'll teach you that, but you got to show up in good shape for the tests. You got to be able to interview well, and obviously you've got to be able to take the exam and uh, and get a requisite score on the, the written exam. All right. Well, there you have it. James Gagliano, thank you so much for being here on Closer Consideration. Jay, thanks for having me. All right, my man, take care. <laughs>